Hi there, and welcome back to season two of Building Better Basketball. I'm Neil Gray, Community Coach and Volunteer Development Manager for Basketball Australia. I'm really pleased today to welcome along Alex Sarama. Alex was requested multiple times, and I'm sure many of you follow him on Twitter for his team and player development ideas he's seen, practiced, and learned from all around the world. Alex, by his own admission, focuses on helping coaches stimulate their thinking by combining their personal and practical experiences with the empirical evidence which exists within the research world. He does practice what he preaches, and he's the head coach of the Palacanestro College Basketball in Borgo Monero in Italy. This is one of the few programs existing in Europe which aims to send players onto careers in the NCAA or professional opportunities in Europe. Welcome, Alex. It's an absolute pleasure to have you with us. Can you tell us a bit about your coaching journey, Alex? You started as a 14-year-old coaching under 12s and then through various NBA Europe and roles in basketball to where you are now. You would have, you would have seen lots, I'm sure. Absolutely, Neil. Big thanks for having me on the show. Big fan of uh, Australian basketball. So my coaching journey started at a young age, like you alluded to. Um, I grew up in England and I, I guess I was, it was the luck of growing up in a country where you can say that basketball is, is not one of the most popular sports in terms of having a, a spotlight in the media, even though a lot of kids are playing and it's one of the most popular sport, sports in terms of participation, it, it's not a basketball country. And so what that actually allowed me, it allowed me to have uh, a role coaching because I knew I wanted to be a coach from a young age and because there simply, there wasn't a culture in terms of, you know, lots of opportunities in terms of clubs and avenues for kids to go down. I actually saw um, there was a gap in the market. So I, I started coaching at my school at 14. And then when I was 16, I actually started my own club because there was no other club in my town um and it grew really quickly and within a year we had 100 players and by the time I was 18 we had 200 players and we were playing in in the national leagues across England and we had some really good girls teams we had we ended up having five girls playing on the national team and really I was just figuring things out I had no idea but I was extremely passionate and that was kind of when I really started going down my research, not in terms of looking at an evidence-based approach, constraint-led approach, et cetera, more really, you know, looking at Gannon Baker videos on YouTube and, and doing all of that stuff. So I started very, you know, in terms of my coaching style, it was the opposite to what I do now. I was very traditional technique, one-on-zero, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then, you know, as I started doing that with the club, I went to university in England and then I was coming back home every weekend to keep the club running. Then when I was at university, I started getting more, I'd say, into a games-based approach. Um, and, and, and that's when I, I, you know, it was obviously a lot more similar to what I do now, but it's not the same. And we'll speak about that later. Um, so I kept the club going for when I was three years at university. And then when I graduated at 21, um, I had an amazing opportunity to join NBA Europe as an intern. So um, I joined the London office for six months and the role was basketball operations. So I was running a lot of the NBA's camps, coach clinics, things like that across Europe, Middle East and Africa, moved to Madrid. And then that's when I really started getting into the research and looking at some of the studies that had been done in skill acquisition learning about constraint-led approach, ecological dynamics. And then 
I really wanted to apply it more to my coaching. But the problem I had with the NBA role was I wasn't coaching a team. So I, I, I needed to get that fixed to really show, you know, the ideas that I was learning about in the studies. So I left after three years. It was an amazing experience, obviously. But then I went to Belgium where I was technical director of an academy and then to Italy. And I've been in Italy the last two years. And it was the same kind of two last two years I've been working with Barcelona Motion and Chris Oliver as well. So that's my story in a nutshell. How many languages do you speak, Alex? Oh, I, w- I wish I could say three or four, but uh, I my that's my one regret. My Spanish is awful. Um, my Italian I'm learning. My Italian is much better than my Spanish, and I don't speak any Dutch at all. Everyone in Belgium speaks perfect English, so I never... Uh, I never was tested. Um, you, you mentioned it a couple of times and, and many of your key coaching ideas are, are based on it, which was the constraint-led approach. Can you just um, explain that to anyone that, that doesn't um, know what it means and, and how you integrate it into basketball and how it is different from what is the kind of widely recognized in the Western world, at least game sense approach? Absolutely. Great question. So I'd say the theoretical framework for the constraint-led approach is something called ecological dynamics. And then the constraint-led approach is is a coaching um, kind of methodology that we can use as coaches based on the ideas of ecological dynamics. So ecological dynamics, it comes from kind of two different branches of, of psychology. One is called dynamic systems theory. Uh, and the other is ecological psychology. Now, what does this mean for coaches? Well, dynamic systems theory is the idea that our human, like human movements are self-organizing. So essentially, there's no such thing as players having stored uh, motor patterns. And this is something we hear a lot, especially in the US, where coaches talk about muscle memory. Um, but with dynamic systems theory, there's no such thing because it's actually the human body. It's it's not like we're robots and we have computer chips inside our brain telling us the exact way to move every time. And, and the idea of dynamic systems theory is that our body self-organizes to move based on the presence of different constraints at that time. Um, then, of course, we have ecological psychology, and that's the idea of uh, perception and action coupling. So essentially... Um, everything a basketball player does in the game, it's a constant cycle of perception, action, coupling. So players will constantly be perceiving and looking for information in their environment to then act upon. So for instance, you know, maybe the player's dribbling, maybe it's a 12-year-old dribbling the ball down in transition. They're going to be looking the whole time and they're going to be acting on different opportunities for action. So for instance, maybe they see there's a, there's a space and they keep dribbling into that space. Well, that's perception, action, coupling. Then maybe they see a teammate who is open and there's a defender in their way, so they decide to pass it. And I think the key thing here, Neil, is that it's just having an awareness of this, but then the, the key thing is bringing it over into the practice environment. And this is where we we get more into the constraint that approach. And I think the key thing for coaches, uh, number one, it's, it's representative practice design. So that is basically creating these same situations i.e affordances and with perception action coupling creating these opportunities actually in practice through small-sided games as opposed to the traditional sense traditional side of things where it's all 
reductionist drills, one on zero, two on zero. And I think the game sense approach to me, it's different to the constraint that approach, because I think there are a lot of similarities because obviously when the games approach, it's typically using small sided games too. But I think the, the key magic is in the constraints you're using. Uh, and, and that's where with the constraint that approach things like coaches, just even like yesterday, I was doing some work on triggers with my guys, we we're doing two on one with a get and then two on one with some pick and roll. And it makes a crazy difference when you just say, all right, go play two on one with a pick and roll. And I think that would be like a games approach versus the CLA where we, I sectioned off a bit of the court and they could only run their two on one in that area. So it really made it more challenging, but it was more realistic because they didn't go into spacing that was wouldn't work in five on five. Then we had at the same time, we had a four second shot clock and they could only get a layout. So I was constraining it. And that's when I, you know, I started just kind of saying, all right, go two on one. And I put the constraints in and it's, it just, it shows us such a big difference in terms of when you see players search for skilled solutions, when you have effective constraints. Um, that was awesome, Alex. I think that was a picture perfect definition of, uh, of both, uh, types of approach, neither of, neither of which are, um, uh, like you, you'll have find positives and negatives in both, but like all coaching, it's how you, you use them in balance and use them with the players that you have. Um, I was randomly searching for something to create some content for one of our upcoming coaching modules. And I typed in, a, it was actually uh, one of the modules we we're doing is, is tournament coaching. And I typed into Google looking for inspiration and some ideas and um one of the first things that came up was a video that uh basketball immersion had done so i think many people will know of you through basketball immersion or vice versa know of basketball immersion through you but for people that, that don't know what it is can you um just tell everyone about that and how it all works yeah absolutely so i'd say with Barcelona immersion really our our mission statement our goal is just to stimulate the way coaches are thinking and just ask the question is there a better way and so essentially everything we're doing is based on research and evidence in terms of skill acquisition how people learn and we're really just trying to take the the research that is available and show coaches practically what that looks like in in terms of application on the basketball court so whether it's an under 10 youth team a, an under 14 team or even a pro team i think really we have we're trying to show coaches of all spectrums, of all ages, how you can do things like coaching with variability, using a constraint that approach, maybe work, apply differential learning, et cetera. Um, so, I mean, we have a lot of free resources too. So I definitely recommend um, coaches check that out. We've got like a YouTube, a lot of blogs. And I think really we're just trying to, trying to help. And I, I think it's not easy, Neil, moving especially for, for volunteer coaches, which our sport is based on in many countries, um, it's, it's, it can be quite daunting sometimes. And I, I think especially when you look at some of the words in, involved in the constraint that approach, when you hear things like an affordance, perception, action coupling, representative learning design, you're like, whoa. But I think as soon as you, you, know, you know the terminology, it, it changes things completely. But really the most important thing is just coaches having an idea of some good small-sided games they can use for their practices which are fun and representative and 
have different, you know, examples of task constraints that you can add. I think that's what we're really trying to do, just break down some barriers there and make sure coaches can see lots of examples as to what this looks like in context. As a someone that's a passionate coach educator um, like myself, and I'm sure some people listening to this, what are some of the most um, prevalent challenges you you see or, or have seen as you um, go around the world um, for coaches that we need to do more to educate them on? Okay, that's a great question. It's really interesting because I've, I've started doing quite a bit of coach education here in Europe. With, so I'm working with three federations and I've actually, I'm, I was writing some, some of it yesterday and it's, I'd say the, the number one thing is the trip kind of the traditional way and the traditional approach to coach education that they've previously been embedded in and and what they've kind of what coaches have grown up with in terms of maybe if they're a former player what they were doing in terms of how they were coached because a lot of the time that's how you know they will start coaching we've all done it that's exactly what I used to do so I'd say it's it's more kind of things it's more embedded in society it's like a macro thing so uh and it's it's everywhere it's it's in all cases so I think what for me, I think one of the key key things is trying to meet people where they're at and and really trying to have a, a very robust framework for how things are done based on research and evidence. So I think when it comes to coach education, I think we can start, what we have to start, number one, is in the practice environment. I don't think like, I think it's very difficult to go in straight away and look at some of the bigger picture things in terms of things like um, what what's happened in the past, uh, whole kind of federational or, or country specific programs. So I think the best place to start is kind of within, within the, the micro, within the day-to-day -day practice environments where coaches spend their time, i.e. their clubs or maybe their schools. And I think... The, the most important place to start there is is looking at practice design and and really looking at how practice can be more representative and and I think the key thing is having tangible examples of what this stuff looks like because it can be lost a lot of the time in the studies and the textbooks so I think it's so important for coaches to be able to have people and colleagues and friends to bounce these ideas off um that's something which i think has been like the most useful thing for me having a close network of i have like three coaching friends who i'm very close with sending messages every day and when i try new stuff i'll often i'll send it to them get their feedback and i think having people that you can you can speak with and really confide in is is really helpful i hope i answer that question okay yeah no that was that was perfect mate you you touched on it there about you having a, a close network of mentors and being in a feedback loop with them. What are some of the, I guess, other ways you keep improving yourself as a coach? And if there's books or, or podcasts or any recommendations you would have for anyone listening? Absolutely. So I actually took this job in Italy for way less money than some other offers I had because of the fact that I would have so much time for research 
and because of the fact I could do things as I wanted and have freedom. And I, I think especially for younger coaches, I think it's so important to get head coaching experience. And for me, I didn't want to be an assistant coach at the pro level. Um, I For me, it's way more, I feel like it's an investment in my future getting head coaching reps now. And it's it's how I learn. So it's it's like, for me, it's having this freedom to, to have so like I, I coach typically within my academy, maybe I'm on court something like 15, 15 to 20 hours a week in, in terms of team practices, individual small groups. So it's that time is invaluable because it's so a I have freedom to do it. And then every practice I'm filming, a lot of the practices I watch back and it's it's key to my growth. But not only that, but then in the mornings, you know, I have Typically, every day I have two hours to start the day, which I block off. I don't do any other than podcasts, of course, because it's it's 7.30 a.m. here. Other than podcasts, I will literally just do research my first two hours of the day. So what that would look like would be, you know, maybe I watch a Pete Lonergan clinic. There's a lot of Basketball Australia content. I, I, I look at everything you guys are doing. Uh, maybe it could be reading a study or reading a some type of book aligned with evidence-based ideas or, or or whatever so i'll typically that's how i'll start and and really obviously the stuff i'm into is very focused on constraint-led approach so i read a lot of the studies and things on that and then i just kind of brainstorm and think about how i'm applying it to my coaching maybe what i'll typically spend some time writing thinking about applications and what that will look like in practices um, then, then I typically, I, I try and I experiment a lot. So I'm constantly doing new small sided games. So I always like to have free time to practice plan. And typically how I start is I just have a blank piece of paper written down and I just write kind of some outcomes down and I think about how we're going to get there. So that's really how I come up with all my small sided game ideas and task constraints. And then um and then I, in the afternoons that's when i'm doing my practices so for me it's it's the perfect balance because for two years i feel like i've been in a deep zone of purposeful practice where i'm doing the research every morning monday to friday and then afternoon i'm immediately applying it and then something i'm really strict on there was the weekends i don't work at the weekends saturday and sunday so that is when i recharge and and really get fresh for the week and i'm very I'm very strict on that because if if the lines become blurred, then I just find like my work quality goes down. I'm not able to research as well. So I, I'm lucky because I can I can do that because I can fit everything in Monday to Friday. I think that's uh, that's a really good um, way to approach everything. I really like what you said there about taking the time, consuming all that information, but actually as well building in the time to then reflect on what you consume because. We're in an environment where there's so much content out there that you can just go from podcast so to podcast to book to book and you end up getting all this information, but you don't actually take the time to reflect on how you can use it and incorporate it into your um, actual coaching, which is the whole point of doing it. Oh, exactly. Um, That's exactly Alex, it. Yeah. Our last question that we ask everyone that comes on um, and we get a uh, in season one because you'll be the first guest of season two when this comes out is that um, if there was one question you could ask a coach of any sport and they can be alive or, or dead 
who would the coach be and what would the question be? It's a great question. I love it. The thing I'm actually really struggling with, Neil, as a, as a head coach, and, and I'd say it's, it's minutes and playing time, especially in an academy where I have, if for context, I'm in Italy, and I've got under 18, under 19, under 20 players and some good prospects, and I'm really struggling with playing time because we've got a lot of good prospects. So I'd actually ask someone like Steve Kerr, who I, I think is the most transformational NBA coach in terms of how he builds relationships with his players. I would actually love to get his advice on how he handles it and how you can be a transformational coach, but maybe there's a there's a there's a, a game where a player doesn't play or they get four minutes. Um, and that's that's the hardest thing I I find because we have amazing relationships with the guys. I'm so invested in it. And then when it comes to games and and you have so many guys, it's it's a really difficult one. So I would ask Steve Kerr about how he does it and keeps a transformational approach to coaching with playing time when guys won't play. Alex, I think I could have added another half a dozen questions and we could sit here and keep talking for hours and hours. I think you might be the first guest that we maybe get back in the future for, for a second episode. So thank you so much for your time, mate. I know it's really early where you are in Italy and um, good luck for um, everything you've got coming up and, and thanks for your time. Much appreciated. It was a pleasure to do this. Now, I'm hoping to actually get out possibly to Australia next year. So we'll have to meet and and uh, and do all this in person, maybe. Thanks, mate.